0: What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this week we have Debbie Berman discussing The Final Girls. Now, if you hear any weird water noise in the background, it's because it's really downpouring here in Toronto. We're getting hit by a very big storm, which kind of fits for this episode, because the film we're discussing is The Final Girls, which is a great comedy horror about a slasher film in the 80s and a group of teens who get stuck in the film and are trying to survive with The Final Girl. So this rain kind of fits in, because it's, I guess, scary. The other thing I want to mention is, if you haven't seen The Final Girls, go to iTunes and rent it. It was in the theaters a few weeks ago, it had a limited release, but it's a great film. If you enjoyed stuff like Dale and Tucker vs. Evil, or anything that sort of pokes fun at the horror genre and the rules of horror, you'll have a lot of fun watching this film. It's a great, great comedy. The other thing I want to tackle is we discuss at one point a spinning camera move, and I realized afterwards when Debbie pointed it out that the explanation, or, or we don't really go into what we're talking about, and so it can be kind of confusing and what happens in the film is the characters try to run away from the moment and try to leave the camp but because they're stuck in a film they are in a loop and so what happens is the camera just continually spins and they keep running by the camera and as they run by the camera uh, a character says a particular line and it's repeated and so the camera just keeps spinning and the people keep coming by the camera so hopefully it won't be too confusing for you. The other thing you should know, if you're in New York City, we're coming for CCW. We're looking to start a pub night for that night, but we haven't locked down a pub. So if you have any pub suggestions, let us know at info at AODG.com. Other than that, enjoy my interview with Debbie Berman. Now, you're originally from South Africa, and I was wondering if you could tell me what the editing community is like in South Africa, and also how you made the move to the U.S.
1: Well, I haven't been there for about 12 years. So my knowledge on the community there is a little outdated. But when I lived there, there wasn't really an opportunity, any opportunities to be a film editor. I mean, they use Cape Town as a location quite a bit. I'm not from Cape Town. I'm from Johannesburg. And there was that one person who'd been making the one film, you know, for 20 years and the one editor. And you just, there was just no real opportunity there. And I was, basically working in reality TV. And I knew that if I wanted to work in film, which is pretty much all I've ever wanted to do, I'd have to leave. So yeah, I left.
0: How did you make the transition to the US?
1: Well, it was kind of a long route for me because quite frankly, I didn't have any money or contacts and I just couldn't get into the States straight out of film school in South Africa. But all my research kind of pointed to the fact that there was a good film industry in Vancouver, and, and everything I read online was calling it sort of Hollywood North. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll go there. And I knew, you know, it was Vancouver's on the West Coast. So I figured I'd meet people from LA. And, you know, like the lawyer I met said, yeah, you'll be there in nine months. I'm like, great, I'll, I'll, I'll immigrate to Canada. Mm-hmm. And of course, the lawyers all lie to you. And it took like three and a half years of bureaucracy and paperwork. And then all of a sudden, I got approved to go to Canada. And after years of sort of living in transition, you then have like two months to give up your life and get there. So I moved to Vancouver, like really excited for my big career as a film editor to start. Hmm. And it had taken me so long to get there that the film boom had ended and the, the dollars had kind of equaled out. And I also only realized when I got there, and when I got into the industry there that Vancouver is essentially a service industry and they'll bring the key crew over from LA to Vancouver and the Vancouver crew are are sort of more on an assistant or you know on set crews so I realized that that was a midway point and I'd have to kind of work my way to get into the States which I think I ultimately wanted to do anyway and so you know I I set a five-year plan like a crazy little Capricorn and it was just like I have to spend five years getting my credits to a point where I can get a green card and in uh, my fourth year in Vancouver I worked on a film called Space Chimps which is you know like little kids love it I think no one else has seen it but you know it was it was a 40 million dollar movie and Barry Sonnenfeld was one of the producers on it and it was kind of the launch pad that I needed it was the, the ammunition I needed to get a green card basically and after Space Jam, I took what I called my leap of faith year off and I just like a crazy person worked to try get a green card and sent in you know a hundred page petition and just did everything and did like little networking trips to the states I met an agent and Yeah, eventually, a year and a half later, I managed to get a green card and then I came here.
0: I know a lot of editors who want to make the transition to Hollywood from all over the world. So what would you recommend for
1: them? You know, it's interesting because sometimes I felt like it's so frustrating that I couldn't just come to L.A. first and have the ability to come to film school here because I think a lot of people make their industry contacts through through the film schools here, but that just, you know, it just wasn't a financial option for me. But sort of with hindsight, I realized that being in Vancouver allowed me to be a big fish in a small pond and also allowed me to sort of grow up and and, and get sort of tougher skin so that by the time I came to LA, I had a few feature credits under my belt. I could just walk into the union. I could get an agent. So if someone is stuck in a smaller community You can use that to your advantage. I mean, I've never assisted. I've only edited. Part of that is because I was in places that would allow me to do that. If you just single-mindedly believed you're an editor, you could get away with it a little more. If someone can come to film school here, I think that that's really helpful. But it can be tough. It took me a long time to get here. But as tough as it was getting here, nothing was worse than not living my dream. Nothing you know, it's hard. And, and, you know, I've literally legally immigrated twice. But, you know, when you're not doing what you feel you were born to do, sort of the restlessness that comes with that is just... it. Yeah, it can just be the worst thing ever. And it sounds
0: like a lot of it is almost preparation. So, like, building that reel so that when you do get down mm-hmm. to the U.S., it's not starting from scratch, essentially. And, and it sounds like you made a lot of trips to... Right. ...build relationships and build networking.
1: Exactly. I didn't want day one of me being in the States to be day one. So while I was waiting for my green card, which, you know, as I said, was about a year and a half, I try to do as much work as possible so that when I finally actually stepped foot into the States, I was on like month two, you know, in terms of how far ahead I got. So, yeah, I definitely recommend just trying to do as much as you can
0: beforehand. And when you did make the final transition to the States, were you able to continue working as a feature editor? Did you have to do a few assisting jobs to just catch up or anything like that?
1: No, I got work as an editor. It was on smaller things. But, I mean, for me, I I don't know. I've, I think there are many ways to become an editor. I think assisting certainly is a route. But I've been living on editing machines since I was 13 years old. And I'm a technical person, like I used to do tech support, like internet tech support while I was in form school. And for me, Building a career as an assistant never made sense. And, you know, when I arrived in... Vancouver everyone said to me "Oh, okay you worked as an editor in South Africa but now you need to be an assistant and similar advice when I got to LA but I felt well I don't even really know how to assist so I'd have to learn a new career become good at it and then break people's impressions of me being that assistant and giving me a chance it just didn't make any sense so um, I turned down you know assisting jobs and stayed unemployed longer and finally got small editing jobs but then when people met me, they met me as an editor. Mm -hmm. For me, that just worked. And then all my experiences, I just kept practicing storytelling.
0: You're in LA now, and, and you worked on the film we're going to talk about today, which is The Final Girls. So how did you get involved with The Final Girls?
1: Kind of a long story, but basically it all began with an email from my agents saying that there was a film that was being shot in South Africa. And being directed by the guy who did Harold and Kumar 3. Mm-hmm. Whenever there's a film in South Africa, they call me. I mean, I never get into <laughs> that, but you know, it's a little. But funny enough, I know the editor of Harold and Kumar 3. It's one of my mentors, Eric Kizak. And he's just been an amazing cheerleader for me since I got here. And I'd gone to an early screening of that film, and I really liked what I saw. I thought like the style was really slick and... I said to Eric, you know, all those years ago, hey, if Todd ever does another film and you're unavailable, I'd love to work with him. Mm -hmm. So finally, you know, I got that email from my agent. I'm like, whoa, Eric, Eric, you know. And so Eric connected me to Todd and we met. And we had a really cool meeting. And I felt like when I met him, I mean, you can hear I'm completely obsessive about making films. And he's one of the few people that I've met that have had that same, like, He basically just loves to make movies. And I felt like a sort of kindred spirit in that term. But then, you know, the film industry did what the film industry does. And it went from South Africa at the end of the year to like New York the next year. And, you know, things, months passed and I didn't actually get the film initially. They, They gave it to someone else. And I remember being at first really upset that I didn't get it. But then I just had this, I don't know. I just knew the film was mine. I just had this weird feeling. I've had it once before with Invictus. I just knew it was my movie. And I reached out to Todd and I wrote him, you know, I was trying to be as gracious as possible and just wished him luck and just told him if anything changed, you know, he knew who to call. And he responded, yeah, I know who to call. And they went and they made the film and I went. And after that, I did a pilot with John Hamburg, who, you know, is a big comedy guy and he like wrote Zoolander and directed I Love You Man. And Eric, the same Eric Kizak, actually got me that job. And so after the pilot, I I took Eric out for sort of a thank you meal and I bought him a scotch or something. And while I'm sitting at lunch with him, his phone was blowing up the whole time. And I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, it's Todd. (laughs) And it sounded, you know, like they needed an editor. And I was sitting right opposite Eric and I just felt this moment of, Magical serendipity. And I was like, tell Todd I say hi. <laughs> and I just became available again. And basically, yeah, it's it's funny, like the stars just didn't align the first time around, but all of a sudden, everything just aligned. And another one of my mentors is Kevin Chant, who's like the nicest person in the universe. And I'd seen he'd worked with Michael London, the producer on Sideways, so I emailed Kevin just saying, hey, what's Michael like? I'm, I'm having a meeting with him, and Kevin's like, oh, you're meeting with him? I'm going to call him right now, and Kevin called Michael and, and spoke to him, and Dan Leventhal spoke to him, and and now I had John Hamburg as a reference, because I think, you know, I didn't really have a comedy credit before, and I spoke to John and yeah, all of a sudden, like, it just was the right time, I guess. And then I had like four days to get to New York. It's funny, from the day I heard about the film and started chasing it to the day I started working on it it was nine months. And I remember emailing my agent that the film had come back to me because I told her the whole time, like, I know I sound crazy, but this is my film and it's going to come back to me. And it did. And it was was a cool feeling. It was really amazing. The
0: film is very much, it references a lot of the... 80s slasher films. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering what kind of research did you do before you began editing or while you were editing to sort of get that feel of the slasher film?
1: You know, it's funny because as an editor, I wasn't actually editing a slasher film. I was editing a comedy and a drama. It's just set in a slasher film. Mm -hmm. So editorial style didn't really count on that I mean obviously I'd seen enough things to understand what we were commenting on the main research I did was actually watching trailers so that the trailer that opens the film sort of imitated the style mm-hmm. of those trailers but yeah we watched we watched a lot of trailers <laughs> <laughs>
0: for the blood yeah camp bloodbath trailer. <laughs> yeah. did you find there was a difference because the the 80s, I guess you could say pacing was a little slower and, and timing was a little slower. Exactly. So, did you find you shifted things for that?
1: Initially, I overdid it and I made everything really slow and I made the cuts really bad. And we, we sort of looked at some stuff and we're like, actually, it's not as bad as we thought it was, you know? <laughs> it is a little so, but so I took it kind of now cuts just a little, you know, slower than you would expect these days. It was truer. Truer to the style. Yeah, truer to not over-exaggerate.
0: Yeah, I was wondering if you could take me through the process of cutting the transition from the real world to the movie in the theater scene and uh, them jumping
1: through the screen and everything. Well, that actually, um, there was a lot of previs for that particular scene. We had a few scenes that they did in previs because a lot of those elements are... Like the bottle falling, all of that is just CG. But we were playing with real time and exaggerated time. So, you know, things like pieces of ash falling really slowly, like a hyper-reality, and then would cut to real time of people running and screaming. But yeah, we were just trying to create a, a, a sort of connection between what we were showing in the movie needed to set up things that we toyed with later. So trying to decide what they watch and how much of you saw them watching was affected by like what information did we need to show them up front that would make something work later and then the fire breaks out and you know just trying to make things as chaotic as possible
0: the big thing for me was the transition to this movie world because it's such a a tricky thing because you don't want to lose the audience it could become one of those things where it's like oh okay we're in this world now and you know, when you think of The Wizard of Oz or The Last Action Hero or these movies where we transition into essentially a movie or another world, it has to be done so delicately or else you could lose the audience.
1: I mean, I think it's such fun once in the movie world. I was never concerned about that. It's just, you know, that scene where they wake up and the van drives up. It's, it's just so much fun. I just I feel like more of a challenge was the changing tones of the film. Like, I didn't ever think... Going to movie land was a big deal. I thought it was fun. I felt people would buy into it. But, you know, this is a film that shifts all the time. Is it a comedy? Is it, you know, then it gets a little scary. Then it gets emotional. And, you know, initially the film didn't actually start with the trailer. Initially the film actually started with we're trying to set Max and her mom up as much as possible because that's the relationship, that's the heart and soul of the film. So there was an inclination to like see them as much as we could before, you know, she dies. And the viewing experience of that was you started watching the film and there was, it felt like a, an indie drama almost. It was just this mom and daughter talking for six minutes and they drive to the audition and they talk outside the audition and then she goes into audition. And, and then by the time... Thomas comes in and it's kind of turned into a comedy. You didn't realize it was a comedy because you haven't been laughing for 10 minutes. And kind of by the time people realized it was a comedy, we were halfway through that part of it. And then they would just sort of grasp into his comedy and then it would take sort of a darker turn. And I think we realized that the trailer, which now starts the film, actually used to be in the diner scene. You know, like Thomas comes in, let's go see this movie tonight and show them the trailer. But as soon as we started the film with the trailer that's kind of the day the film really just started working. And now you watch the film and it just sets the tone and you realize it's a comedy. And we realized also that we didn't need to spend that much time with Max and her mom because their relationship is so strong throughout the rest of the film that seeing them talk at each other for like, you know, their, their chemistry is lovely, but you didn't, you still bought that relationship later on. So yeah, that was my transitional challenge, letting, the tone flow and, you know, also just cutting the scarier moments down like that scary cabin scene at the end used to be a lot longer, but realizing like you can't have too much of that just at the end. We we haven't really done a lot of that throughout the film.
0: Speaking of the tone shifts, what I found really fascinating was how you went. So we start with the mother and daughter and their relationship, then she loses her mother. And then when we're in the, the film world. It's the sort of balance between her being friends with her mom because she can't divulge the information to then becoming mother-daughter again. So that shift in, in their relationship and the tone.
1: Yeah, it was very delicate. And in that way, I got lucky because the two actresses were amazing. They really, you know, I didn't have to save it or force it. Like The performances were there and their connection as human beings was there and it was on screen. And it was just a case of how much to show when and one of the things when she first sees her mom in the van and she cries like tears just run down her face and there's an inclination as an editor never to really let someone cry like you let people's eyes well up with tears and you know what I mean you always cut away before they cry and it was just more real like actually and and also especially never in the beginning of a film like if they're gonna cry you let that happen at the end so you don't sort of step on that moment but it was so real that she would I mean if she's she saw her mom again her mom's been dead for three years it was just a very simple and real moment and just to like not interfere with it and not let it be that moment of the tears and eyes just yeah she'd cry and let her just let it let the tears roll down and it, it was effective. I think, you know, you buy into it.
0: I have to say, I love the, the van arriving three times.
1: Uh, it's so much fun. <laughs> so much fun, yeah.
0: And the other part that I, I really liked where there's that sort of repeat is where they're trying to run away. And they keep reappearing and the camera spins.
1: It's interesting because um, that scene had a really good edit session with Todd where we're doing the loop scene. And, you know, it loops and loops and loops. And then we get to the end of the scene and they'd say we're stuck in the movie. And I kept saying to Todd, something's wrong. We're missing something, that like, there's a beat missing. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I don't know how to articulate. This is not like an intellectual thing. I can just feel, you know, like I can just feel something's missing, but I don't know what it is. And I, I was kind of getting frustrated. And I like, I intuitively knew as an editor, I was like, well, let's just leave it because I don't know how to explain it to you. And I don't even know what it is, but I just know something's missing. And then kind of him being a good director, he's like, no, I can see you feel strongly about this. Why don't you just play around and, and, and see what you're trying to feel? I was like, okay. And then I realized what we needed were those snapshots of the camp just to sort of drive home. Like, this is where they're trapped. They're in a loop, and it's at the camp. They had B-roll of the camp, and I put in a couple of cupboardaways of the camp, and then, you know, our composer was also there, and he put in some really cool sound effects. And then all of a sudden, that scene just hit home, like, Oh, you know, we're stuck in the movie. And I was like, ah, this is this is the fun of collaboration. Like just that was a cool moment in the editing room where we just kind of found it.
0: How did you approach like how did you build that that moment? Because one of the things that sort of stuck out for me is that the timing was all perfect.
1: You know, I can't really take credit. It's it's kind of the way they shot it. I mean yeah. I stitched the takes together and I try to, but it that won that me. <laughs> I mean, we had it in ADR and things to help it feel like it's moving along. But yeah, most of that magic happened on set.
0: I took a couple of people with me to see it. And then also I know a couple of people who saw it at TIFF. And everyone wants to discuss the Adderall strip scene. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> Can you tell oh, us about is... that
0: process? Because that was hilarious. Sure. <laughs>
1: oh, I love that scene. You know, it's funny because that's one of the scenes that I think people have, like, would almost think the editor has nothing to do with. But I would actually say it was my one of my toughest scenes to cut because, you know, they didn't have a lot of cameras at night. And Angela, who plays Tina, is brilliant and hilarious. But she, she was improv the whole thing. So I had all these. And secondly, every time we cut her, I should try use the funniest parts possible if you were to like freeze the frames before and after each cut nothing actually cuts her hands and face always in like completely different sort of places but i cheated it with the motion she was using so if like a hand went left to right in the next shot i'd let her you know face go left to right and your eye would play tricks on you I think initially the biggest cheat was her trying to get her gloves off and yeah. she really kind of struggled because they're wrapped around her and I just remember getting a note from Sony actually. They gave me a really great note and they're like, she's not dancing enough in the beginning. And I went back to the beginning of the glove and I'm like, well, I know that but the only way to do that is to do this huge, huge continuity cheat where she rips the glove off and then literally in the next, next shot she has that same glove she ripped off back on but I kind of just realized you're having so much fun like no one notices that and so I just let go yeah it's I let go of all continuity and just let the motions trick your eye and initially it was actually cut to Def Leppard pour some sugar on me which it was actually even funnier it we'd have screenings and people would be falling out of their chairs laughing it's it's I'm still a little heartbroken I mean it was I know it was amazing and when we couldn't get that song we went through so many songs trying to figure out like what could be as good as pull some sugar on me and weeks and weeks and weeks and so many songs and just nothing you know seemed as good and we'd had cherry pie earlier but you know we, we kind of missed it and I think it was Todd's sister who said no that one's actually funny and we're like it is and we put it back in we' like Oh, yeah, it is. The words, the, the music, and I, I recut a little to match the timing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's an amazing scene. She's she's hilarious in it. And, it's, you know, she kind of, she totally steals the show in that moment. But yeah, I love it.
0: She steals the show once she has the mitts on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, as soon as they put like, duct tape them on to her, yeah. she's trying to take them off. This whole, like, just the little subtleties in her acting is amazing it's funny
1: because it was it would have been too easy to make their character the dumb blonde yeah and that's not what they went for at all she's amazing in it and she's just a lovely sweet person in reality too which is always nice the actors were very involved normally i don't really meet the actors that much but they would come to the edit suite everyone like they fell in love with the film so yeah it was uh it was fun his little family
0: now I was wondering if we could talk about the last sort of part of the film where okay. where they have to go into the cabin where Billy is to get the mother out mm-hmm. and there's a lot of uh, lightning flashes and I was wondering how did you use this in your cutting process were you hiding cuts in the the flashes where you did it help you with your pacing or anything
1: not really I mean there were certain times where for dramatic effect I try cut on a lightning flash just to help push a cut. And there were certain times where I had to make sure it didn't interfere with the emotion of the moment and make sure like the flash happened, but before the cut or a bit after it. So it did affect it sort of in that way. Yeah, it's actually funny. Side story. The last, speaking about the cabin, because that was the starting point, the last 18 or so minutes of that film was cut in three days. (laughs) <laughs> oh wow we basically i mean you know we started so far behind and we were working away trying to do the editors pass and the directors cut at the same time and all, all of a sudden kind of the gavel came down and we we're like you have three days to finish the film and come back to la and at that point because it was literally thrown from that scene i knew the film so well i mean i've been working six day weeks for months and i knew todd so well and it was this crazy experience, I mean, I had to cut the big emotional scenes, the big fight scene, but it, it kind of just, I don't know. I, I'm one of those people who love pressure. Like, I think it's fun. I work better under pressure. And we were really freaked out because this film was our baby and we're all in love with it. And we're like, how are we supposed to do this in three days? And if you ask me or Todd, or the composer now, we will tell you those three days were our favorite three days on the film because it was just a pure experience. You just went with your gut. It was just all in, full intensity, hearts and souls on the line. And we actually handed it in like eight hours early because we just, we knew our movie by then. And it was really cool. But yeah, whenever the cabin scene comes up when I'm watching, I'm like, yep, I I remember. That's that's where it began.
0: (laughs) And and what was the process behind cutting the battle scene where she has the the machete at the end because
1: that was a lot of it looked like a lot of rope work. Well I love cutting action that's kind of my favorite thing to do there was a lot of rope work you know sliding on grass that sort of thing but just trying to make her feel as kick ass as possible like she is the final girl now she's a warrior and just trying to do everything I could to to make it exciting and, and, and to feel that
0: What is it about action scenes? Action
1: moments yeah I think as an editor it's basically the most fun i mean you know i enjoy cutting other things also but when it's action you really the door's wide open for you to do what you want to do i mean you're you, you're you not stuck to dialogue or you, you know you can just there there are things happening and it's weaving things looking cool because i like things looking cool i like fun and stylish and slick things but Also, I'm in love with story. And so being able to combine those two elements of things looking cool while I'm using every shot to tell a story, like I just, I love the challenge of that. Like my my favorite scene in this film is, you know, the car crash, not the initial one, but when most of the characters die, where Paul and Kurt dies, because I was cutting action, but I was also trying to interweave this dialogue with the mom and the daughter having a moment and kind of realizing something is up, trying to make you laugh and trying to make everything fall apart and every time someone dies they then have to up the ante and things are crazy and crazy and just there's so much room to play as an editor with that i mean you can just switch a lot of things around and really build it so i don't know i just i love i don't know it's fun <laughs> the the malleability <laughs> it's just, it's just of just it fun, yeah. Yeah.
0: now i have one last question that i'd like to ask all the editors i uh, interview and that's what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch
1: i have so many most of them embarrassing <laughs> um you know what there's, there's this old film that Gene Wilder directed called The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes Smarter Brother. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so weird and but hilarious. And actually in South Africa, you know, sometimes they change the names of things. I'm not sure why, but it was called The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes Younger Brother. But anyway, it's this it's this Gene Wilder film and it's weird and they sing and it's it's I don't know, it's amazing and it, it always cheers me up. <laughs>
0: Sounds like a great film. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview
1: Oh, thanks. It's been fun. And I'm so glad you enjoyed the film.
0: Oh, I had a blast. So that was my interview with Debbie. I'd like to thank Debbie for joining me. I'd like to thank, of course, the American Cinema Editors and Jenny McCormick for setting this up. If you're in New York and you're going to CCW, let us know. It's info at AOTG.com. You can always chat with us online at AOTG Network on... Twitter on Facebook, facebook.com slash aotgnetwork. And of course, we have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash aotg.com and dot spelled out. Well, I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.